All right, well, good morning. We're going to get started. See some visitors here. We have been working through the latter chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, we'll be doing that through the end of March. See some of the chapter titles written up here that I'll talk about. We're up to chapter 17 and 18 on uh, perseverance and assurance, or more specifically, of the perseverance of the saints and of assurance of grace and salvation. Now, I don't know if Josh got lucky or is good about uh, putting these together. I know he's trying to get through a series and putting things together. My next time I'm teaching on civil government and marriage and divorce, so those aren't so connected. But today it's perfect because I really couldn't talk about either of these subjects without talking about the other one. And we'll see that interplay. Now, if you've been halfway conscious at all through the Hebrew series, um, you might feel like this is going to be boring because Hebrews is about perseverance and assurance. And the, chap- the passage we'll use today as our text is from Hebrews 10. And so hopefully some of this is familiar and hopefully some of it's fresh as I, I try to not just speak about each of these subjects, but how they interact, which I think is really important. Now I'm going to do the opposite of Josh last week. He kind of shotgunned at us with tons of verses. Today I'm going to look at one verse, uh, or one chapter, one passage. And it really just highlights the need of both in our, in our normal Bible study because the confession was put together. The, the, the advantage of Josh's approach is it, it shows that these guys that got together for a few years to come up with a confession didn't just kind of write things down. They, they're, they're proving that all, this comes from all of scripture, right? We're trying to look at the systematic approach to certain subjects and it shows, if you go to the, the right websites or have the right book, that not only have the text of the confession, but all those, those proof texts, the PCA website's a great one, has them all right there. You don't have to go searching. Uh, that's really important. It's important that, yes, this is a human document. This is not a document we hold up to the same as scripture. And yet there was great care taken uh, in the confession. And even though probably all of us have, might have little points here and there that we might disagree, you couldn't say that it was a careless endeavor. And even as we see the, the, the flow of the chapters, you really see some wisdom put in there. But I want to I wanna open one passage because sometimes what happens when you go all over the place, you don't know the context of each of those passages. And so what you really need to do is open up every one of those and read the whole context, which of course means you need to read the whole Bible, and that takes a lifetime. But that's what you need to do. And so I kind of want to balance it out just to show another approach to this. So we're going to stay in Hebrews 10. As you're opening to that, let me just read some of the words. Well, first let's pray. Who would like to pray for us? I didn't assign anybody. Anybody? Mark? Do you mind? You're being voluntold. Gather Amen. So the word perseverance. I read through lots of books just straight through the last few weeks. It was really enjoyable. Here's some of the words that the Bible uses, uh, synonyms basically for perseverance. Continue, abide, remain, hold fast, patience, steadfast, preserve their souls, perfection, keep oneself. All these present tense verbs. That's the point of perseverance, that your, your life of faith is not just what God has done or what has happened to you in the past, but it's carrying on through your life. And there's, a, there's an assumption of not just being and surviving, but maturing and growing sanctification. That, that you don't just kind of sit there and, and don't grow. There's an assumption of growth. But it's not just that. It's not just surviving, but it's, it's against resistance, temptation, hardship, and suffering. You need to endure, strive, earnestness, resist, bear the reproach, stand the test. Or uh, back in uh, September, Tim preached on this passage. He called it stick to right? Um, some of this was, was prepped in a, as I was been in airports the last few weeks. 
So I don't know if this analogy is a good one, but it, sometimes I was sitting at my gate just kind of waiting. I just It was very easy, playing on my phone, prepping for this. Very easy just to wait for the flight. Other times I was kind of in a rush, and I'm waiting through all these people and trying to, you know, there's, there was this endurance and this, this struggle. Very different types of waiting and enduring. Uh, Tim read for us a couple weeks ago the marathon passage, what it's like to run a marathon and just keep on when you, everything in you says to stop and you need to keep on. That's perseverance. The opposite of perseverance would be words like drifting, hardening your hearts, go astray, fall away, failing to reach or enter, ignorant and wayward, becoming dull of hearing, sluggish, going on sinning deliberately, shrinking back, failing to obtain the grace of God, neglect, be led away, pass away, being a hearer who forgets. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about perseverance. For assurance, here's some sentiments for assurance. Confidence, comfort, hope, encouragement, conviction, surety, convinced, sure and steadfast, anchor, clean conscience, establish your hearts, joy. That would be assurance. The opposite of assurance would be doubt, fear, anxiety, Weary and faint-hearted, double-minded, unstable, and ashamed. So as we read through this passage in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, hopefully you're going to see some of these words, and you're going to see both of these these subjects, these concepts, um, held together, as they always are. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have had a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, these next few verses, don't get get lost, don't get distracted. There's some deep stuff here that we're not going to cover. But these are just further descriptions of what we're talking about. This idea of, of basically turning from God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings and sometimes being sometimes being publicly exposed to rep- reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, 35 things, worksheets were not. If you got multiples as a family, maybe pass them off to a family that doesn't have them. That would be, that would be great. So the context of Hebrews, as you should know by now, whoever wrote it is exalting Christ, greater than anything you had before. Greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than the law. And he's a mediator of a better covenant that's enacted on better promises. Uh, and so based on that, you, these are people who have at least confessed a faith. They have participated in Christian worship. And, but they're, they're undergoing persecution. And some of them are struggling. And they're, they're thinking about going back. For them, it's going back to the law, to the old covenant. For us, it might be whatever is in our life that we would go back to. Is this life really worth it? And the, the writer is calling on them, believe these things that I've been telling you, these, these, these truths that you can't see, that you have to apprehend by faith. They're, they're true, and you have a reward waiting for you. You must persevere. You can't just 
you know, give to the world or give to God. Look what I've done. Look what I've experienced. Look what I've already suffered for faith. That is not enough. If you don't persevere in your faith to the end, you're going to be lost. And, and it's not just, it's not just, oh, you've missed out on a reward. You're going to be judged and condemned because you've actually experienced and learned things that have put you in a much greater level of responsibility. So hopefully, as we read through there, you can see what, what words do you see there that speak of perseverance assurance? Anyone? Let's throw out a few of those. Confidence. Not shrink back. Yeah. Joyfully accepted. Yeah. Joy is part of assurance, isn't it? It's, it's an enjoyment of salvation. Preserve. Here you go. Hold fast. Hold fast. We've got abiding, enduring hard struggle with sufferings without wavering. The opposite, going on sinning deliberately. Heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, just littered throughout uh, this text, which of course is why he chose it. Imagine that. We either persevere or we fall away. It's on your handout. Or another way you can say it is, verse 39, we either persevere in faith, or verse 26, you're going to persevere in sinning. You're going to persevere in something. There's no such thing as just being neutral. So many passages we look at talk about this binary nature. In some ways, there's a spectrum. In some ways, there's a, there's a growth. But in some ways, there are two camps. There are those who are lost and those who are saved. And, and those who, who drift, who kind of hang out, um, that's just a false perception of what's happening. Because what's actually happening as you're not progressing and moving forward is, is you're becoming hard. And you're in danger of slipping away and going the opposite direction. Because that's really what happens in our life. No one's going to get to the end, you know, and God's going to say, well, you weren't really fervent in faith. You weren't that regular, but you were a good guy. Um, you treated people well. It's, it's going to be more, Lord, Lord, have I not done all these things in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. It's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. It's going to be something so stark. And, and, and we need, we need to understand that, that truth to, to be propelled, to persevere. Um, all right, let's look at the confession there. Now I'm only going to read some of the underlying parts that I've, I've highlighted, which is too much material to cover it all. So, but the rest of it is there if you want to read it in context. So chapter 17, Perseverance of the Saints, uh, paragraph one. Those whom God has accepted in his beloved can neither totally nor finally fall away but shall certainly persevere in it to the end and be eternally saved. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we're talking about how your life ends. We're talking about a perseverance to, as the chapter actually is titled, to to salvation, to a perseverance of your in your faith, to ultimate salvation, to security. Um, when I was in high school, I, I decided to join cross-country so I could get in shape for soccer. Now, if I didn't have my jeans on, you would see I do not have cross-country legs. I have soccer legs, and more specifically, goalie legs, the guy who doesn't run much. But so my first event, there's like 200 people there, and I was, I'm smart. You know, I got there first. I'm at the front of the line because that's going to give me an advantage in a you know, a five-kilometer race. And uh, the gun goes off, and I'm running. And I'm not sprinting, because I know it's a long race, but I'm running the way I know how to run. And I kind of notice 50, 60 yards into it, I don't hear anybody else. And I kind of look over my shoulder, and there's nobody there. And probably by 100 yards, we had a state champ in my school, and he kind of runs by me. He says, nice sprint, Keith. Um, and I, I, last, I, I think I finished. I did finish, but I finished in the bottom 10 of about 200. Um, you know, how I started that race was of no consequence in the end, where, where I placed. Now, I did finish. Um, there is a sense that the, the Christian life is a race. Paul talks about that. But in, in another sense, it's just you need to finish. Some of us will finish well. Some of us will finish poorly. But finishing, persevering to the end is what matters. And so we can't just look back 
and, and, and rest in our laurels, as they say. Um, so this first paragraph is basically what people would say is, once saved, always saved. That if you have been saved, if these things have been true of you, they will always be true of you. If you're a Christian, there's never a time that you're not going to be a Christian. But perseverance is much more than that. Uh, paragraph two says, The perseverance of the saints does not depend upon their own free will, but on the unchangeable love of God the Father, the intercession of Jesus Christ, the continuing presence of the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian language there. Verse 21 of our text. Since we have, present tense, we have a great priest over the house of God, which he told us in chapter 9, always lives to make intercession for us. And then verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so our, I know and this always gets into that logical tension when the Bible talks about working out your salvation. And I, I change the colors here in the sense of the way, like John Murray would say, redemption accomplished and applied, where there are things that are in our salvation that God has fully done on his own. It's all of God. And then there's a time that it's still of God, and yet it's, it's interacting with us, and it's, it's through our experiences. And yet we never want to... We never want to assume that God has left the picture like God did this and now it's up to us. That's not grace. That's not salvation. That's not Bible. And, and I know there's, there's, there's a sense we don't fully understand that, but even faith is a gift and our repentance and our good works, as we've already said, are always ultimately by the power of God that enables us. And we always lean on his power. And so anything we've said in the Westminster Confession, anything else that's in the Bible is still true as we talk about perseverance. So don't miss, don't miss that. Chapter, uh, paragraph three. Nevertheless, they may through temptations and the neglect of means fall into grievous sins and for a time continue in them. They'll experience God's displeasure. Some measure of God's graces and comforts is taken from them and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Look at verses 25 and 26. He talks about not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. We can fall into the habits. We can fall into patterns of life that are really neglects. If we go on sinning deliberately, that's just a good example, I think, of the fact that active obedience usually starts with some kind of a passive negligence. We don't, we don't typically just turn on a dime and start rebelling. There's usually a period that I'm tired this morning. It's just not, do I really need to go to church? Is that really a sin? You know, just something like that. And, and, and then it just becomes a pattern and, and it just becomes comfortable. It becomes easy. Maybe you fall into a crowd that holiness isn't so important or certain, certain means of grace aren't so important and it just becomes easy. And three, four, five, ten years later, you look back and say, what happened? I, I used to be this kind of guy. How did I, how did I, how do I become this kind of guy? And, and watching out for those things. Chapter 2, verse 1, he said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So as passive negligence can lead to active disobedience, to reverse that trend, you have to be active. Pay attention so that I don't drift. You must commit yourselves to these things. And the important uh, distinction here is Paragraph 3 talks about for a time and temporal. Instead of in paragraph 1, he talks about totally or finally falling away. And that's what we mean about perseverance. There are going to be times in a true, sincere, genuine believer's life that, that they're going to have setbacks. They're going to experience and feel highs and lows. And we don't want to, we don't want to measure our perseverance and soon our assurance on that kind of up and down thing. We're going to talk about how to combat that when we get to assurance. The, the, the idea of perseverance is that overall, in your life, you make it to the end. You get there. There's a finish line and you make it. You're faithful in the end. That's how you'll be measured. And just take note of that, that little phrase there, the comforts for a time, that kind of really talks about assurance. And we'll talk about, the again, the interplay between perseverance and assurance. Now, Perseverance really comes in two parts, and there's a couple ways you can say it. There's kind of a God part and a man part. I've heard it said that you could say that this is God's preservation. 
So in perseverance, there's God preserving us. God in heaven, standing by, attending to us, continuing to give us grace, making sure that we don't fall. Philippians 1, 6, right? You began a good work and you will not, will will continue to carry it out. Um, and then, but it's, it's, so God preserves, but it's man who perseveres. Preserves. Now, I don't really like those terms. Maybe I shouldn't have used them. Because in a sense, both of these are true of both. Even at the end of the, ch- the chapter, it says that we believe and preserve our souls. So even in, 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 our, in our part of this, that we're preserving our souls. And I think you could say that God perseveres with us. right? So you could say God is persevering with us while we persevere with him. Or you could say God perseveres in grace while we persevere in faith and repentance and good works. And so the, the important thing is that both of these are taking place. Um, we, we can fall into the doctrinal error, and, and there is a logical tension, like we always feel with these things, but if, if we emphasize one and, and without the other, we, we're going to fall into some error, right? If we, if we just focus on the fact that, will God preserve us? Once saved, always saved. And we don't expect any kind of perseverance, any kind of fruit, any kind of continuing confession. That, that's easy beliefs of them. I mean, that's just... That's wrong. That's the warnings of a passage like this are meant for just that person who will say, but I believed. I walked an aisle. I, I was baptized. Right? This passage is specifically warning such people who will rest on such past works. Yeah. You know, the tension for me here that I've often struggled with is the fact that God is indeed sovereign. And if he is indeed sovereign, he is ordained that uh, going through this period of falling away, then how is it my responsibility? I mean, these are logical questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to. You're absolutely right. It, it just becomes, there is a massive tension. And don't let, I guess, don't let the tension drive you away, right? We, we worship a wise God who understands, it's not a tension for him. <laughs> Praise God. But it is for us. Yeah. I, I I struggle with what you should, you ought to, and so forth and so on. When, when you know that God predestines you, He designed you, He put it in your DNA to be to be a certain way. I it just it just boggles my mind. Absolutely. We need to do this, and, and, and we have to persevere. God, in, in His sovereignty and through His Holy Spirit, had the writer of Hebrews working with us, but still. You know, I, I'm troubled when we put too much emphasis on man's effort. And I, uh, I'm with you, brother. And that's why we just... I don't it, know how to reconcile uh, God's sovereignty, his pre-design of me, his knowing what I'm going to do, and my effort. I, I can't... As Spurgeon said, you don't need to reconcile friends. <laughs> yeah, Tim. It's an irresolvable tension. Yeah. Okay, you can't resolve it. It's impossible to do and also, it is important to remember, God, we are responsible and commanded to do a lot of things we can't do. Absolutely. I mean, I'm commanded to repent, believe, right. and unbeliever, I'm not right. Make yourself alive. Right. Commanded to be alive. Exactly right. Exactly right. some point, we just fall on our face <laughs> and, and believe it all. And, and, you know, sometimes you get into, like, Calvinist, Arminian debates. Don't go to the logic route. You might do a little bit to disarm their logic, but go scripture. That would be my encouragement to you. You don't want to convince someone of biblical truths because of some logical, just a logical working. In the end, they need to bow to scripture. There, there's no explaining theology to anybody by me or even by pastor. Only, only the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, you know, I, I would do this with much for a minute and I just beat my head against the wall until I got to the place I understand you're never going to explain or no. And their system has logical fallacies as well. So both sides, you're going to be challenged. Not going to do it. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. I think uh, you know, even when I take my run in the morning, I go through and I tell other people I do this. You know, I go through this, you know, debate in my head, you know, about this very thing. It almost loses all the time. The one thing that I think that I always preach to myself is that is that yeah, you think it's your effort, okay? But who put that thought into your head to do that? Yep. It wasn't you. <laughs> it was God. Yeah. 
Amen. Okay, so it goes back to God. So people think that they're putting forth effort into their, you know, belief, their faith, all these things, but it's the Spirit of God that put those thoughts into your head, and we have to rest on that. Amen. We get all the blame, He gets all the credit. That's what I say. So if, if we emphasize God to a point of not expecting fruit, we have one error. The other would be if we're if we're kind of leaning too much on on man's effort and not on God's grace, you're going to lead to something like, well, either you can lose your salvation, right? If, if I got myself in, why can't I get myself out? So if it's really up to me, and now I'm going through these up and downs in life, and I don't, I don't see these things the way I think I ought to, I will immediately run to, well, I've lost my salvation. I need to get back in. And so the focus just keeps coming back in yourself. Or you'll get to a point of, of perfectionism. Like, if you're truly a believer, you will never sin. I ran into that early in my in my faith, and they they have their verses right. You, you pull any of these verses out uh, and at, in isolation, it, it can see on the face of it to support all these all these doctrinal errors. And so we need to take a holistic approach. Neither of these are true, uh, as well. And similar, we'll have a pastoral challenge now. Um, if we emphasize th- this is good, if we we want to emphasize to the weak, genuine believer. God is preserving you. God has not abandoned you. What you feel today or this week or this month or in this trial is not necessarily true. You can feel that God's presence has fleed from you, the psalmist says. But it's not true. He's there. He's with you. And we want to give that, that comfort. But at the same time, we might be giving comfort to a false believer. Right? That's the challenge. A passage is here, so you don't have false assurance. False assurance is a reality that we need to be aware of. We're, we're about to talk, uh, talk about. On the other hand, if I want to emphasize that I should be seeing things, right? I, I sh- brother, I don't see this in your life. I'm worried. I haven't seen you in a while. I see you doing things that are in stark contradiction to God's word. And I'm, I'm concerned for you. Now that can be good. That can, that can get someone back. That can wake them up, keep them from drifting. And yet to the, to the crushed soul who's a believer, that can make them feel like, oh, it's all up to me. I've got to do better. And, you know, now I even have less assurance. And so there's a pastoral challenge, and that'll be one of our application questions at the end. One way to resolve the doctrinal issue would be a verse like 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they would have been with us, been of us, they would have continued with us. So basically, someone who appears to be in the faith if they leave and abandon the faith, we wouldn't say they were saved and lost their salvation. We would say well, they were never truly saved in the first place. And we could go to many other passages. Let's go on to assurance. Chapter 18 there. All right, paragraph one. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they are in God's favor and in a state of salvation, nevertheless, those who truly believe on the Lord Jesus may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so, like I said, we must recognize there is a danger of a false assurance. We can't measure our salvation just on our emotions and our feelings and and how good we're feeling. And yet, on the other hand, there is a true assurance to be had in this life that is attainable. Look at verses 26 to 31 overall, those complicated verses. But verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Now, lots of views on exactly what this could mean, but it appears to be someone who at least has some kind of religious experience, was probably recognized as a member in a church. So, Sanctified in that sense, not sanctified in an ultimate sense of, of being secure in Christ. The word sanctification is used different ways in the scriptures. But someone who, again, had some kind of a badge, had, was, would have been recognized as a Christian at some point in their life. He's saying, you're profaning that. You, you abandoning Christ now, running back to the old covenant, you, you're throwing away everything. All these graces, all these influences of the gospel that you've had. You can't rest on that. That's a false assurance to rest on such things. And yet, there is a true confidence. There is true joy to be had in this life. Go to paragraph two. This certainty is an infallible assurance of faith founded on the divine truth of the promises of salvation, 
on the evidence in our hearts that the promised graces are present, and on the fact that the spirit of adoption witnesses with our hearts that we are God's children. So it basically says three things. Our assurance is based on, number one, God's promises. Number two, a personal evidence. And number three, the Spirit's witness. And I don't know if it's meant in there. I, I would also say some kind of an evidence of others noticing these things. And maybe that's meant there. But, so, but basically there are, there are objective and subjective truths here. There are objective truths in, in verses 20 to 23. There's a new and living way that is open for us through his flesh. We, so because of Christ's mediation, because of what he's done on the cross, there is a way open into the Holy of Holies. That's an objective reality. You don't have to see it. You don't have to feel it. There is an objective truth that that has been opened on the cross. We have a great priest over the house of God. That's a truth. He who promises faithful. Again, it's, it's faith in things that are already true. And yet there's a subjective sense to that. That God is at work in our hearts, having a true heart in full assurance of faith, verse 22. Heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So our life of, of faith, these truths are not just things to be believed because we read them in a book. One of the great things of assurance is we, we do have experiences. If you're someone who has only read the Bible and never had an experience, I highly question your salvation. God is not a God who doesn't interact with us and and work in our hearts. He, we, we have these experiences. And yet our experiences and our, our current emotions aren't always reliable. Yeah. I, uh, I love the temple imagery that's woven through this passage. And I, I, when I read the warnings here, I think of, uh, I'm forgetting their names, Aaron's sons, uh, Mayu and whatever. Uh, who are like are consumed by you know their strange fire? Yeah, yeah. Kill, killed by God because they are worshiping in a way that He is not prescribed. Yeah. And so woven also throughout this passage is that we are uh, are obligated to worship God in the way that He has prescribed for us, and that that our um, dedication to that is fruit of our experience in, in worship. And it's it it all like ties together, and I, I the sprint the sprinkling of the blood, the the torn curtain uh, in in Christ's flesh, and all of this stuff is just it, it it screams temple worship. And we're about to read about the means, uh, so that there are means by which you have assurance. If if you neglect God's means, why would you expect to have assurance? Right. Paragraph three: This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. Yet because he is enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given to him by God, he may attain this assurance by a proper use of the ordinary means. It is therefore the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. By such diligence, his heart may grow in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties which obedience to God requires, the proper fruits of this assurance. Paragraph 4. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished or temporarily lost in various ways, just like our chapter on perseverance. As by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin in which wounds the conscience, by some temptation or by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance. Yet true believers are never completely deprived of that sincerity of heart and conscience concerning duty. Assurance may in due time be revived. So the start of paragraph three there, what do you think it means that assurance does not belong to the essence of faith? Uh, there are a couple of phrases that really jumped out at me as I studied this. Not every believer enjoys assurance at all times, right? Assurance can come and go. It's not the essence of faith. We could say the essence of faith would obviously be a confession. Um, essence, of, uh, essence of faith would be some measure of repentance and good works. Someone can't have faith and not have these. But what the confession seems to be saying is, assurance is, isn't the same thing as that. Assurance isn't something that you could be assured of, in a sense. Look at uh, 32 to 36 there. The first few verses, 32 to 34, says, Recall the former days. You endured a hard struggle. You had compassion. You joyfully accepted. You knew these past tense verbs. It's, but even though this was the experience of these people, they had this great resume, 
that they can throw out of things that have been true. They have proven perseverance. They've had, they've clearly had assurance. And yet as he goes on, he doesn't assume that that's going to last in verses 35 and 36. There's this continuing call. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Right? You, you may have had great sweet times of blessing. And yet just to assume that that's going to continue. Don't, don't be surprised when you fall in, in, into these cycles. Right? This is something to be aware of so that it doesn't just totally crush you. While a Christian cannot abide without true faith, he may abide in faith without assurance. If I'm reading this right. If that's wrong, then that's my own fault. You, you can't abide without faith. It doesn't make any sense for someone to abandon the faith and then still go to heaven. That, that doesn't make any sense. That, and yet, you can be one who abides. You have true faith and yet struggle in assurance. That, that's a truth in some of our lives. Some of you are probably finding yourself uh, in that boat right now. Yeah. Well, I think there is an interplay there for sure. I think it was, we'll jump a little bit to the end here that the reason, one reason assurance is so important is because it does help propel you in all these things. So I think a lack of assurance probably will affect your repentance and your works. I, I think what is meant by the word essence there is that that you, you can truly have faith and yet not have assurance, at least today, right? Um, and yet I, I think I can confidently say that if you're one that claims to have faith and I see no repentance in your life, then I don't think you have faith. I think that's what I mean, but I'm happy to be corrected. No, you're not going to be corrected. The... Uh... <laughs> He's talking about infallible assurance, and you have to understand the Puritan context. They made a huge deal out of rolling in assurance. In other words, there's an assurance uh, of a father, the spirit of adoption, witnesses with our spirit, we're the children of God, and that's a, a measure of assurance. But he talks about going through really difficult times in life, and the Puritans emphasized that there is this thing called the assurance of faith that is in greater measure uh, as, you, as you are sanctified. Yeah. Does that help? <laughs> uh, you know, kind of dovetails with what my wife had asked us. In 1 John 5 13, uh, we read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So, speaks of assurance to him, but is, is the author talking in, in the context of the evidence of your faith? Well, it, works. it sounds like he, he is talking to people who believe you have faith, and yet he's not assuming that they have assurance. That's how I read that. I want you to know that who those who believe in Christ, I want you to know that you have eternal life, to know that you know, right? You know Christ, and now I want you to be really assured of that. So those would be one of the great books, actually. Yeah. Oh, just to pick back on that, the word essence, I think, is maybe where the, you know, the confusion can come from. And in that, repentance and good works are essential to faith. If you, if you don't have right. them, you don't have faith. Right. But assurance is something that can come and go and, and be really sort of like wobbly. Right. Right. Um... Yes, go ahead. The way I look at this is if we persevere through God is preserving us through, we have assurance that we persevere through God. It's just a logical step, God, and it's not so much a, a faith as God has shown us in this faith. Yeah, I think it's all of those things. Let me go through one more section, and then I do want to get to that exact question. 
So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is don't let your assurance cause you to lose even more assurance. But, so what do you do? What should give you insurance? Well, we just said it in paragraph two there. Look to God's promises. Look to the reality of faith, repentance, and good works in your life. Believe what God has said through the gospel. Believe these things. Um, I, I had someone once who seemed to have had faith a couple years later was saying, well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I believed back then. So am I going to sit here and have a debate on if she believed two years ago? Who cares? <laughs> Believe today. <laughs> Believe the gospel. I don't know. I don't care. Persevere. You need to believe today. I'm not going to go look at some card you might have signed one day that said, I believed once. I'm going to look at where you are now. Are you believing the gospel? Right? That'll help us in our counseling to ourselves and to others. And yet, so assurance is not an essence of faith, and yet it's not an option. That doesn't mean it's an option. It's one of those super Christian things. You can be in the higher tier. Assurance is our duty. That that phrase really struck out at me when I read this. It is therefore the duty of everyone to have assurance. What? <laughs> That's something you give, God. How is it my duty? We're back to that tension. But Second Peter 1.10 is specifically right there. You are to make your calling election sure. God expects joy. God expects you to enjoy his salvation. It's not a, a thought. Why? Aren't we the ones that are going to miss out? I mean, that's like saying, telling my son, clean your room and you can have some ice cream. His duty is to clean his room. I wouldn't say his duty is to have ice cream. And yet in God's world, that's true. He wants us to have that ice cream. He wants us to enjoy salvation. And there's probably lots of answers to that, but kind of back to what you're saying. Assurance produces fruit. You know, there, there's an interplay there. The more I have insurance, the more confidence of these truths of what God has done is going to propel me to resist um, temptation, to endure hard struggles and trials. The, the less I have confidence in those truths, the more I'm going to start believing my eyes and my senses. The, the less I'm going to believe God. And so it's important. And to your question, how? how? How do we have these things? It says that the ordinary means of attaining insurance. And that's where you can just look at some of these other, these other chapters. In chapter 15 on repentance... It said, repentance includes one sensing not only the danger, but also the filthiness and hatefulness of his sins. Chapter 16 on good works. Good works are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, and by them believers strengthen their assurance. So there's an interplay with good works. If, if, if I don't see myself persevering in these things, it's going to shake my assurance. And in one sense, it ought to. It ought to shake it. You ought to wonder why I'm not Believing why I'm not seeing the ability to, to do what God wants and that I'm, I'm relying on myself. Uh, it's going to go on it, to other things. The, these means of, of worship. Corporate worship involves reading the scriptures, preaching, singing of psalms, receiving the sacraments, religious oaths, vows, solemn fasts, and thanksgivings, as well as individual and family worship. And so we're going to carry on the Westminster in some of these means that will help us in our assurance will help us in our perseverance. And here's a big question, but why would God withdraw the light of his countenance? Why would he do that? It says there in the fourth paragraph. Why would God withdraw his presence? There's a hundred answers, but I'll take one. Anyone? He's holy? Okay. I'll take a second one too. <laughs> okay, why, why would that sanctify us? Why would withdrawing his presence the joy of our salvation. So that we might see what's in our hearts. Okay, yeah. It's kind of letting us go. Seeing what's there. A disappointment. Sorry? Like a kind of disappointment. There, there is a sense of a temporal judgment, of a fatherly type of disappointment, and for us to feel that. This is what Tim said in September. <laughs> yeah. The struggle is there to ensure our hope is in Jesus and nothing else. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit. Exactly. Yeah, where, where is my hope? Where is my assurance? If my assurance is how well things are going, how comfortable my life is, how I feel, even though my assurance might be based in my own works or just a neglect, I don't want to think about my sin, God's going to remove that because that's a false assurance. And you're not really persevering. You feel like you're persevering because things are going well, people like you, you're respected at church. But that's false. Joy, what's joy? 
know, God's joy or what's, what's joy that you're looking for. Know, there's joy in that bank account and I stuck in this world. That's joy. What's God's joy? Right. Joy. That, you know, you know, I don't have this joy. What is it? Right, right. Paul talks about in Philippians about, is your joy based in your circumstances? Or do you, have you found the secret to be joyful in any circumstance? Um, all right. Well, we're quickly running out of time. So let's jump to the relationship between perseverance and assurance. We've already hit a lot of this. I would, there's at least two effects that I'd say. Number one, perseverance strengthens our assurance. Be, that makes sense. If, if, if I should be persevering, if I should be seeing things in my life and not seeing, that's going to shake my assurance. And the more I see faith and I'm truly believing these things and I, I find myself able to repent and I see truly good works, not the ones I put on show for people, that gives me assurance. God is at work in me. He's still there. He's doing things I couldn't do on my own. That strengthens our assurance. But I'd say the other way as well. Verse 35 there says, your confidence has great reward. So as you have assurance, it helps you persevere, right? Because, again, I believe these things. I have confidence in these things. This is really just a strengthening of faith as opposed to what you see. You're going to persevere. But there are the tensions. As we impress the need to persevere, the need to fear the wrath of God, like this passage does, we're in essence warning against the false assurance, right? If you're not persevering, you shouldn't have assurance. But again, for those who are weak in faith, that warning could crush their soul. Now you could have a false doubt, right? You could truly believe these things, but you don't have the experience right now going on. So again, if you measure your life just by how you're feeling, or if I had my quiet time today, or something like that, you're gonna, you're setting yourself up for a roller coaster. And that's one of the beauties of Reformed theology. There's just this, this bulwark of what God has done and is doing and will continue to do that you can rest in. And, and you, you, you repent of your lack of joy. You repent of your lack of works. You repent of your lack of repentance. And yet your hope is still there in the rock. It's not in yourself and how I'm doing today. As we seek, the other tension I would say is as we seek to encourage the weak saint that God will sustain them we might embolden a false professor. So we have to be careful there. That's a challenge, right? That's a pastoral challenge, a parental challenge. If someone wants assurance of their faith, don't point them to the flimsy things of, well, you, you were baptized, or you once said a prayer, or you once said you believed, or I saw you in church for all these years, even though it's been five years now. Don't give them that assurance. These are not easy. This is going to take wisdom. And this is going to take many meetings with somebody, not just a, a chance encounter on the plane, right? And ultimately, this is very humbling. We leave it to the Spirit of God, right? Ultimately, the Spirit has to assure somebody. So ultimately, we're going to turn them to the promises of God. We can talk about all these truths. And ultimately, we're going to leave it to the Spirit to assure them or warn them. And we want that, that bifurcation. We want someone who is not in the faith to leave. We want it to be clear to us. We want it to be clear to them. I mean, that's much better than somebody having some false assurance. I, and I welcome those people in my life, and I don't want them to feel turned away from me. Oh, I've left the faith. If one of my children ever abandoned the faith, I'm not going to abandon them as a child. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm in a sense that I'm glad they've come to that. I, I want that faith to be their own and not mine. And I want them to be honest about, I don't believe this, Dad. Right? They should be able to say that. that that's a good place to be. Still going to pray for him and evangelize him. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Okay, so we don't really, I don't think have much time for application here. Um, but again, some of the application questions I have there, those are the, those are tough ones. I do want to read, I'm going to take the time even though we're a little late. There's just, uh, early in my life, Pilgrim's Progress made such an impression on me. If you haven't read it, you really need to. Um, this is near the end. This is as, so the whole, it's a whole analogy of walking, you know, through this Christian path and getting to the celestial city. But to get to the celestial city, you have to cross this river, right? And it's a river of death. It's, it's the analogy. And, and you're going to see that you have these people who have these great trials and they've overcome so much and they, they have so much to their credit in their life. And yet some of them are going to die well and some will not die well. 
Now I further saw that between them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to pass over it, and the river was very deep. At the side of this river, the pilgrims were bewildered. But the men said to them, you must go through the river or you cannot enter in at the gate. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there was another way to the gate, which the men answered, yes, but only since the foundation of the world has been permitted to tread that path, namely Enoch and Elijah, the two people who never died in scripture. All others shall go through the river. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to lose heart. There's that loss of assurance. They looked this way and that, but they could find no way by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all the same depth. No, they replied. You shall find it deeper or shallower, just as you believe in the king of the city. Right? This passage across the river is going to be easier or hard, depending on your, your assurance, ultimately. The pilgrims then approached the water. Upon entering it, Christian began to sink. Crying out to his good friend, Hopeful, he shouted, I am sinking in deep waters. The billows are rolling over my head. All his waves are washing over me. Then Hopeful replied, Take courage, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is firm. Christian then cried out, All my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me. I shall not see the land which flows with milk and honey. With that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian, so that he could not see ahead of him. He also in great measure lost his senses, so that he could neither remember nor talk coherently of any of those sweet refreshments which he had met with along the way of his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spoke still tended to manifest his horror of mind and heart fears, that he would die in that river and never obtain entrance at the gate. Here also, as those two men who stood by perceived, Christian was much in troublesome thoughts concerning the sins that he had committed. Both before and since, he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed by his words that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. Hopeful, therefore, labored hard to keep his brother's head above water. Yes, sometimes Christian almost drowned. But then, in a short time, he would surface again, half dead. Hopeful would also endeavor to encourage him, saying, Brother, I see the gate and men standing ready to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you. It is you they are waiting for. You have been hopeful ever since I first knew you. And so have you responded hopeful. Ah, brother, said Christian, surely if I were right with him, then he would now arise to help me. Because of my sins, he has brought me into the snare and has left me. Hopeful reminded him, my brother, you have quite forgotten the text where it is said of the wicked, they have no struggles in their death, but their, their strength is firm. They are not troubled as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you are going through in these waters are no indication that God has forsaken you. Rather, they are only sent to test you as to whether you will call to mind what you have hitherto received of his goodness and live upon the him in your present distresses. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in deep thought for a while. Hopeful then added the word, take courage, Jesus Christ makes you whole. With that, Christian cried out with a loud voice, oh, I see him again. He tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Then they both took courage. After that, the enemy was still a stone and could no longer hinder them. Christian then, therefore, felt firm ground to stand on and found that the rest of the river was but shallow. Thus, they both crossed over the river. Now upon the bank of the river on the other side, they saw the two shining men again who were waiting for them. Therefore, having come out of the river, the shining men greeted them, saying, We are ministering spirits sent forth to serve those heirs of salvation. Thus they went together towards the gate. Now that city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we are treading <laughs> in deep waters here, and there are things that we are not really capable of. We pray for your spirit to either encourage or warn us as we need. Help us to not drift and not, and not just go along with the Christian faith, but help us to strive to endure. And we do pray for assurance and great confidence in our faith. We pray for the next hour of worship as well together. We pray that it would help us both to persevere and have assurance. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.